This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about disinformation and how it spreads, which means that we're really talking about social media. This is one of those topics that is both intimate to so many of us and also in a way out of reach, beyond our control. Every day I have, I don't know how many moments where I think about what I'm getting from my social media feeds, what value they're bringing to my life, and also what harm they're doing. And this is all for good reason. These platforms feed on the kind of confirmation bias that warps reality. And as recent history has shown, People with agendas are happy to leverage that feature to their advantage. But what can be done about it? We could delete our accounts, or maybe rely on a kind of personal vigilance to ward off disinformation. But if most of humanity just wants to be connected and not really think about it, we're left really with just a couple options. One, government steps in. Or two, the companies police themselves. And that really is where the conversation is right now. We wanted to get a little deeper into the subject, so we invited two people who have written a lot about social media to the Crosscut Festival to discuss the problem of disinformation and some possible solutions. Jillian C. York is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and is the author of Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. And Andrew Morantz is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. This talk, which is led by New York Times national technology correspondent Cecilia Kong, took place in May. So there is a bit of a time warp at the start here, when the guests discuss a then-recent decision by Facebook's Independent Content Oversight Board to punt the question of former President Trump's suspension from the platform back over to the company. It's worth noting that Facebook is scheduled to complete a review based on that decision later this month. This conversation and all other conversations on the tech and economy track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Comcast, which would like to share the following message. Comcast connects Washingtonians to moments that matter, helping their fellow residents stay connected to their families, workplaces, schools, entertainment, and their world through the internet. Comcast Washington is dedicated to serving their local neighbors and working with nonprofits, businesses, and cities to create equitable access to the internet and other technologies for communities statewide. Visit washington.comcast.com to learn more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Jillian, Andrew, thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I thought we'd start off with the news of the week. Andrew, can you start off by telling us what happened in Facebook land this week and the decision by the Facebook Oversight Board on the former President Trump? Yeah, so, I mean, you're you're more uh, well-qualified to 
to tell that story than I. I only wrote one piece about it. You wrote twenty five pieces about it, but I um, <laughs> but I yeah, uh, Facebook has created uh, an oversight board, and we can get into why they did that. There are there are cynical takes on why they did that. There are more kind of idealistic takes on why they did it. But they they um, of their own free will and with one hundred thirty million dollars of the company's money created this sort of quasi Supreme Court to uh, provide oversight, uh, some people say so that um, the government would be less uh, likely to do so. And that board started rendering decisions earlier this year uh, on everything from whether uh, people could show photos of uh, with nipples in them to, um, you know, hate speech uh, about ethnic minorities in various countries around the world to things about Nazi propaganda. And the biggest decision they rendered was on Wednesday about whether uh, Donald Trump's account, well, several things, whether it should have been temporarily suspended, whether it should be permanently suspended, and whether Facebook's reasoning was apt. And basically what they said, it was a 12,000 word decision, but basically they said, you were okay to temporarily suspend him, Facebook, but you were not okay to indefinitely suspend him and we're not going to rule on whether his account should be permanently suspended. So the kind of bottom line was what you did on January 7th was okay, but we're not gonna take the hot potato of telling you what you need to do in the future. That's up to you to decide in six months. And here are a bunch of reasons why we think you failed to uh, be coherent in your reasoning so far. Right, so they essentially kicked it back to Facebook. Facebook right. said, Listen, we've created this oversight board to tackle the thorniest, hardest issues on speech that and and for users as well as us to refer and to re appeal some of these decisions. And they and the oversight board said essentially, well, on the permanent ban of President Trump, we're sending it back to you. And Julian, Mark Zuckerberg himself has kind of compared this to this board to a Supreme Court. Let's back up a little bit. Why did it, why did Facebook build this board in the first place? What is it? Is it actually, or create this, is it actually like a Supreme Court in your mind? And what is the function of it? And how does it get to the theme of this panel, which is trying to stop the spread of disinformation? Yeah, so I mean, this was an idea that had been tossed about with amongst civil society organizations for many years. Um, Article 19, for example, a group based in London had put out the idea of uh, social media councils, a, a kind of forum that could exist as an external oversight board um, for various companies. But I think that Mark Zuckerberg does see this as a Supreme Court. And yet, um, you know, I was at one of the consultations for the oversight board. There were, I think, seven mm -hmm. of them in different countries mm -hmm. around the world. And they... One of the suggestions that was put forth was, in fact, to have kind of a, a case law framework where decisions made by the board would indeed trickle down. But that's not what happened. And in fact, the board was, you know, kind of not created like a court in the sense that the decisions really do only reflect the current moment. Um, I think that the board has done some really interesting things, such as putting forth policy recommendations um, with each of the decisions and expanding their own scope. But I don't see this really as a Supreme Court. I see it as, you know, one one idea that um, is providing some external oversight to a to a pretty problematic company. Andrew, would you would you agree as well about sort of the the role and the function of this of this oversight board? And and this week you wrote after this the news on Wednesday, you you wrote that the problem with Facebook is still Facebook. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. So I think. Um, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds about this. On the one hand, I'm pretty pessimistic 
of uh, these companies' abilities to uh, sort of fix themselves voluntarily on their own. I think what we've seen in the past is that these companies, like a lot of other companies, respond to incentives and they respond to pressure or the lack thereof. And for the first decade or so of the existence of social media, they weren't really given meaningful pressure in the form of government regulation, in the form of um, public <laughs> civil society resistance. I mean, there was obviously some that it, it just um, was not widely taken up in a way that the companies sort of felt threatened by. So on the one hand, I think that the people who are skeptical, I, I obviously, you know, often join them. I guess the only thing I would say on the other side of that would be that I'm kind of, um, you know, these things are what we make of them. It's sort of in the way that like, you know, money is a social construct that we decide has value because we all value it, you know? And so when people say cryptocurrency is made up, I kind of say, well, yeah, but so is fiat currency, right? That's kind of how I feel about the Supreme Court of Facebook. People say, well, it has no uh, uh, enforcement mechanism to which I sort of say that that's true, but that's also true of the real Supreme Court, right? The, the real Supreme Court doesn't have an army that enforces its decisions. Its decisions are enforced by norm and by precedent. So um, I don't think that necessarily means that, um, that, you know, Facebook will become as robust a system as, you know, American democracy to the extent that the American democracy is, if you want to call that a robust system. But um, I, I guess what I would say is that it, these things can develop into something greater if, uh, if people put stock in them, right? So um, it's not as simple as saying that, uh, the, that all these things are social constructs because sort of everything is a social construct. The question is, what does Mark Zuckerberg choose to pay attention to? And that has to do with social pressures. It has to do with financial incentives, it has to do with a lot of things. Um, I think the fact that they want this oversight is itself meaningful, right? None of this, none of this was preordained. Certainly. You know, about two hours after the decision was rendered by the oversight board, I got an email, I'm sure you got it as well, from the former president saying, um, with the reaction, it was sort of his usual, you know, this is, these are radical liberal leftists who are in powerful tech companies and, you know, the election was, you know, a fraud. And so some of the similar things that you've heard, but I was struck that that was the only way he can reach me. And I think we'd be remiss if we talked just about Facebook because he's been permanently banned from, uh, from Twitter and he has been indefinitely banned from YouTube. And Susan Wojcicki has said, the CEO of YouTube has said that he will at some point um, get back on when it, it, uh, it looks like it's safe to do so. I'd love to hear, Jillian, your observations um, on what has, has the problem of the spread of disinformation, at least through the, through the spread of misinformation, disinformation from the former president, has it actually ceased now that he's off those three platforms? What are your observations of sort of the vacuum, the Trump vacuum, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that there's certainly something to be said for deplatforming. I mean, we saw it, you know, I was I was skeptical of it in the, in the early days. And then we saw when like Milo Yiannopoulos was kicked off of Twitter a few years ago that really, I mean, he just kind of ceased to exist for some time. Now he's claiming to come back with full force. But I think with Trump, we are, you know, kind of seeing a vacuum here. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that it's interesting because a lot of the ideas that he thrust out into the world and, and helped to push in other countries are still thriving on these platforms. And Facebook is, you know, in fact, taking down content at the behest of governments such as that of um, Modi in India. Um, so, yeah, I mean, while the Trump vacuum is kind of 
occurred and he doesn't, you know, I mean, he, he can still call up Fox, I suppose, but he's not really putting himself out there. He can still reach your inbox, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that ultimately, have we silenced his ideas with these actions? Not really. And that's what kind of scares me is that this, the long-term impact of this, um, you know, still remains to be seen. You know, I'm glad you brought up other international leaders, Jillian, and, and I'd love to hear from you, Andrew, what this means for other political leaders around the world as they watch the the Facebook Oversight Board decision and the Facebook, now the Facebook decision um, that will come out in six months. What are the implications beyond Trump? You know, Angela Merkel and some other world leaders after Trump was taken off social media on January 7th and January 6th, they expressed concern. They said that this shows that there's too much power on the hand in the hands of you know a few gatekeepers of of speech. What are how will should world world leaders and are they viewing the 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 role of these the decisions by these social media companies? I think they're definitely watching. I mean, I think Bolsonaro has been pretty nervous, uh, and you know has has tried to get his followers to reduce their reliance on Facebook. Um, Duterte, you know, issues death threats on Facebook pretty regularly, and he's never really seemed to uh, be sanctioned for it. So, I mean, you know, Trump was never, you know, in a vacuum, right? There are kind of uh, authoritarians and would-be authoritarians around the world, uh, most of whom are on Facebook, and um, the rules are, tend to be bent for them uh, in various ways that are generally ad hoc and sometimes kind of incoherent. Um, and even beyond individual world leaders, I mean, I think, you know, it's not a coincidence, right, that the, the kind of emotional engagement that social media amplifies and algorithmically promotes is also the same kind of emotional content that helps strong men get elected around the world, right? This is not, um, this is a multifactorial thing. It has to do with various countries' economies. It has to do with trade. I mean, it's not, it's not just social media, but I, I think, you know, we, we can't ignore the extent to which, you know, this is not one person or even 10 people. This is, you know, the, the, the way that xenophobia and fear and outrage and all these things are the emotional lifeblood of the viral internet. Um, it, it's not a coincidence that the business model of these companies and the, and the algorithmic kind of base, uh, substructure of these companies overlaps so neatly with a certain kind of demagoguery in the political realm. These, these aren't, these are just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And either of you, please expand on that a little bit more. I'm glad you bring up the technology, which I think was one thing that in this Facebook oversight board decision, they did bring up, they said, um, of some of the questions we asked of you, Facebook, you didn't answer one of our questions about the newsfeed and the role of the newsfeed um, in promoting content. So for those who don't follow us closely, what, what is the role of this technology in spreading, spreading um, or amplifying the voices of at least the president and also maybe some of the other tools like groups and ads and other places that weren't part of this particular decision and have forced Trump and Trump, at least many of Trump's supporters into other corners? Either of you, please. Maybe Jillian, you can start off by talking about your your thoughts on the the technology and how this sure. makes it unique. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many different facets to it. I mean, I think Andrew's really the expert on this, but one of the things that that I've witnessed over the past few years and where there's a lot of conversation um, among civil society in the global south is around the role of things like 
private groups, um, WhatsApp groups, you know, family chats, things like that, and just how quickly these messages can spread in those communities. Um, and so there are, you know, solutions to this that are not necessarily speech-based solutions. Some of the things that folks talk about are, um, you know, for example, limiting who you can add to a WhatsApp group. That's a that's a change that happened a couple of years ago, and something that made a, a huge difference in just how quickly something could spread. But obviously, there's still issues around this, and there's issues around the ways that these companies actually are policing private groups um, on both sides. I mean, we see, you know, over policing of certain areas and then under policing of others. Um, but yeah, Andrew, I'm sure you've got a lot more to say here. Yeah, I think that I think that's all right. I mean, I think, um, look, it, it, it is true to a certain extent that, you know, there are <laughs> that, you know, nice, wholesome, positive things can go viral on the Internet. Right. We're all everyone who was sort of around in 2013, 2014, and remembers when, you know, the biggest problem with the internet was supposed to be like fluffy cat videos. They're, they're too viral. What are we going to do? You know, um, and that there is still that function of the internet, right? It's, it, it's a powerful force for, you know, press freedom. It's a powerful force for, you know, dissident political views. Like that's all still true. But I think um, what we've clearly seen now, and the reason that I thought it was important to write a book called Antisocial was not that I just wanted to do a screed about how social media sucks. It was that there was this darker side of the coin that was just being sort of conveniently ignored for a long, long time. And it just happens to be the case that the base of the brainstem, the sort of lizard brain emotions, it's just easier to make a buck or make a name for yourself with that stuff. Um, you know, the, the reason that I spent so much time with people like, you know, you mentioned Milo Yiannopoulos or any of those people is not that I was particularly keen on, you know, leaving my house and spending time with really gross people. It was that, um, you know, they uh, they represent something really important. You know, just because we're taking Milo as an example, at the beginning of his career, he was advocating for um, we really need to get all the trolls off the Internet because that was th that that kind of take was what was incentivized. And then he sort of followed, you know, along the incentive structure to to, you know, Islamophobia and transphobia and all these other things that were incentivized. So there's always going to be a certain kind of person that is filling uh, the niche that the market is incentivizing. And it just so happens that, you know, despite the fact that all of uh, Facebook and Twitter's ads are about groups and, you know, how to find a couch in your in your neighborhood and how to send your mom flowers for Mother's Day. Right. Those aren't the things that are structurally incentivized on average the most. And are you seeing, Andrew, are you seeing, where are you seeing the the Milos and the others go to? Um, those who have been deplatformed, are they, are, you know, it's for, for many people who are just on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, um, out of sight, out of mind, but they're going someplace. So where do they exist and are they thriving? Are they, are they, you know, um, will we see an emergence at some point of, you know, some super body of voice from, from, Trump former followers and others. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not sort of uh, anticipating a like traveling Wilburys reunion tour of all the, you know, all the old superstars because I think the individuals, the individuals come and go, right? It's sort of like, you know, you, you the who the supplier of the, you know, nefarious toxic chemical is doesn't matter as much as the sort of supply chain, right? So, um, the individuals, to me, you know, I write narrative journalism, so I had to 
sort of hang it on a particular person or set of people. But the individuals, I think, were always less interesting than the structures that were propping them up and 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 incentivizing their behavior. And so the, the end of, those people have gone, you know, either to Telegram or to Parler or, you know, and, and to Jillian's point about how deplatforming does work. I mean, I think there was a time when the jury was still out on that. And I think we now have enough data to see that it it, it is effective. I mean, I spent a lot of time at the headquarters of Reddit, for example, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they they have a lot of data on when you quarantine, that was the word they used before we were in a global pandemic, but when you quarantine certain kinds of hateful speech, when you you know put friction in front of it, when you put warnings in front of it, those things really do work and they sometimes work surprisingly well. That doesn't mean that that comes without speech concerns and all the rest of it. But um, the question though is, are you doing a kind of whack-a-mole, right? Are you, um, are you sort of, incentivizing, you know, fires and then bringing a bucket to the latest fire? Or are you systemically thinking about, okay, how can we stop, you know, building houses out of wood, right? So it, 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 that, that's why I was, um, to, to Cecilia's point, I was, I was very interested in the part of the oversight board decision that was about the Facebook, the questions that Facebook wouldn't answer, because those really are the core elemental questions. And they're the things that Facebook and the other companies don't really want to talk about. And they don't want to talk about it because why do you why do you venture? They don't want to talk about it, Jillian. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know Facebook really is engaging in a game of whack-a-mole. They're, the way that they handle content moderation, and especially since the pandemic hit um, and they had to send a lot of their workers home, is in fact you know this this just striking wherever they can, taking down whatever they can. And we're kind of seeing that happen over the past couple of weeks um, with a number of opposition movements around the world. And so, you know, I think that these questions are not interesting for these companies really because they're not profitable. Um, Facebook, you know, it, it pays a lot of attention to moderation in the United States because there's been so much political pressure around it. It pays attention to certain things that it has to, such as terrorism. Um, and of course, there's, you know, other countries such as Germany that have regulations that these companies are required to abide by. But when it comes to the rest of the world in places where, you know, there aren't particularly profitable e-commerce markets or what have you, um, Facebook just isn't that interested in investing in content moderation. That's what we're seeing in, um, you know, a a large number of countries where they don't even have the local language covered. Um, So I think really that's kind of what it comes down to for them. You know, one thing that um, you mentioned, Andrew, was how Reddit has seen some success with some of the measures that they put in place that are, just either new tools, um, creating friction, for example. So, so Facebook itself, as well as um, Twitter and YouTube, have said that you know there is a role for um, you know we, we just to back up. We hear quite a bit like freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach, meaning the algorithm shouldn't be able to amplify the speech, right? So there is a view that maybe reverse, if this is the right terminology, reverse amplification or using tools is a, is probably a great solution. Do you think that's the case, that that is a great place to start in terms of technology as a solution? Like if you're, if you have, in other words, if you've created a fire hose, then maybe you can control the spigot in some way. And is that perhaps the right um, approach in your mind, Andrew? I think it's a place to start. Um, but I think, you know, to, to pick up on what uh, Jillian was saying, that not only are these questions not that profitable, uh, for these companies to consider, especially, you know, long tail content moderation stuff. They're, they're, they're also, they, they can be actively harmful to their bottom line, right? So 
I, there are technological fixes and, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to, you know, improving things where you can in a piecemeal way. I think that's gotten us much farther than, you know, if we'd done nothing over the last five years, but, um, you know, what Upton, Clint, Upton Sinclair said, it's hard to get a man to, you know, convince a man of something if his salary depends on not believing it, you know, and, um, and, you know, most of them are men. So that unfortunately, the quote doesn't really need to be updated. But, you know, they, um, they, they don't want to face a lot of these things, because the business model would fundamentally have to change. I mean, you saw this in a lot of the reporting around the oversight board, you know, people within the company saying, well, how much are we really going to let them, you know, get to the core business model stuff? They, they, a lot of people within the company were okay with, okay, you guys can make all these kind of recommendations about how transparent we should be and what kind of data we should be publishing. But are we going to actually let them say like, we shouldn't have a newsfeed because then we would really, or we shouldn't, you know, have ads or, you know, these things that will actually affect the bottom line. Um, so, you know, I think, yes, you can do a lot. You can, you can have people build a lot of tools. These companies all have very talented engineers who want to do good work, who want to feel good when they go to sleep at night, you know, so I'm not opposed to any of that, but I think that to really, truly be, um, to really, truly be open to solving the problem would mean, and, you know, Silicon Valley people are supposed to be really interested in like, you know, radical new ideas, right? That would mean being open to the radical idea that um, the core business model is fundamentally harmful to the world. And that's not an idea that gets a lot of traction in these companies. Yeah, I mean, the purview of this board, the, the Facebook oversight board is limited. And even some board members have said they want to be able to see, get like the, the, the hood to be lifted on the algorithms. And I don't think that they're getting much of an audience at Facebook for that. Um, one thing, Julian, that you've written about is how you think that content moderation has its limits um, in the spread of this information. Can you explain that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, I think that content moderation is really truly impossible at scale. And I think we've seen that play out with Facebook, which now has what something like almost 3 billion users. Um, and so what we've seen over the years is, you know, just as many things being left up that perhaps shouldn't be under the under the rules. Um, we see just as many things taken down that shouldn't be taken down. Um, and again, you know, this includes things like opposition movements, um, art, all sorts of things. And so I think that the limitation when it comes to disinformation is kind of twofold. On the one hand, these companies are increasingly using automation to identify content. And automation works for some things. It works for things that are easily classifiable, binary, um, but it doesn't really work well when we're talking about things that have nuance, whether that's video or text. And a lot of the, the stuff that we're seeing around QAnon and other conspiracy theories and disinformation is stuff that you know, requires some nuance to parse and identify. And then on the other hand, I think that, you know, we do need to have a broader societal conversation about what actually is disinformation. And I'm not saying that as a conspiracy theorist, but rather that, you know, I think that historically, if I think about my own education, um, there's a lot of disinformation about the history of the world and the history of the United States that I learned in school. Um, but we're talking about, you know, very specific kinds of disinformation, stuff that certain people think is so, um, and not others. And so I think that we just have to remember that all of these things are subjective in some ways, and that if we're leaving this to companies or to the law to make those determinations, there are going to be things that are left out of it. Um, the same goes, of course, for, you know, I think medical disinformation is worth bringing into the conversation. It's been such a big part of the past year. And, you know, I'm 
obviously all in favor of the vaccine and vaccines in general. Um, but when we talk about limiting medical misinformation, one of the concerns that's arisen from from people that I've talked to is that a lot of the, the ideas that we have now about health, about gender, about a lot of things um, have been suppressed by medical institutions historically. And so I do think that we just have to be careful in how we identify this and who we leave that job to. And as far as who we leave that job to um, and oversight, Andrew, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think there's a role for government when it comes to the spread of disinformation. And if you and 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 further, if you've thought about what that might look like, government's role. Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I mean, you know, to the to the question of medical misinformation, right? This is I'm sure somebody has asked this of Facebook in some form, and I haven't heard it, but I would be curious how they would answer the question. You know, what do you do with a video clip of Anthony Fauci last March saying you shouldn't wear masks; they're not effective, right? Mm -hmm. it, does that clip get taken down or left up? I mean, these are. I, I would be surprised if they had a, a good answer to that question, right? So um, there are no easy answers. It's always contextual. It is always pretty resource intensive. And that's why I think, you know, you know, it, it prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of whatever. Like you, it, the, the further upstream you go, the more you're going to be able to limit disinformation. What Facebook and all these other companies are currently doing is catching things at the last possible stage when people are posting things and they're deciding whether to take them down, the further upstream you go, the more effective you're going to be. Um, I do think there's a role for government, but I think it's very tricky when you're dealing with speech. We obviously have a First Amendment to contend with. And and so I could I think that the antitrust stuff is promising. I think there's a case to be made for, you know, uh, spinning off the, the, the Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions. I think Amazon is a pretty easy antitrust case to make. But I don't think... I think that's actually necessary, but not sufficient. I think that would be one step toward a much larger cultural shift that would have to happen that's almost so big that it's hard to even uh, talk about what it would look like, but it would it would require um, an entire new uh, technology and, and communications landscape, sort of in the way that, you know, if we want to fix the climate, we need a whole new infrastructure mm -hmm. landscape. I think it would sort of be that on that scale. Um, Jillian, your thoughts on regulatory or legal approaches to this? Is there a role for, for government? I, I, I can venture and guess where you might land on Section 230, but go ahead, please tell us. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what the, what's Andrew what Andrew has said, and I think you know, just building off that, um, competition is something that I I'm definitely excited about. But I agree, you know, it's not going to solve all of the problems. I think that we have to see it as again part of the toolbox and not the silver bullet. Um, when it comes to Section 230, I'm I'm skeptical of every proposal I've seen so far. Um, I think there's questions around the constitutionality. Constitutionality. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> constitutionality. There we go. Um, of Healing it or reforming it. Um, but again, not a lawyer here. I think that really, you know, what it comes down to for me is that these are global platforms. They chose to be global when they launched um, and when they built their offices all over the world. And so I'm, I'm actually, you know, my perspective is that I'm quite skeptical of U.S. regulation around this, um, as well as just the fragmentation that's happening as we see more and more countries put in place um, various regulations that require companies to take down certain content or leave up certain content, um, as in the case of Poland and a couple of other places. Um, so yeah, by and large, I think that we're going to have to get creative um, and think outside of the, the usual frameworks to find the right solution here. Okay, great. I'm going to ask you both, 
to what piece of advice would you give to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube, and or Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. It could be all of them or any one of them. So I'm gonna put you on the spot, Andrew, when it comes to solving this disinformation problem. Um, well, I, I've i said before that the number one thing that Mark Zuckerberg could do would be to finish college um, because, you know, there, there are, you know, I think when you've been lauded your whole life for literally your entire adult life for building this one thing, uh, you you don't necessarily have a lot of time to think about how history works, how sort of global complexity works. And, you know, I'm not saying he's not a smart guy or that he doesn't even, you know, necessarily that, that he doesn't care or isn't concerned about these things. But I think that, you know, the reason that I have the phrase techno-utopians in the subtitle of my book is that I think that there is this very sort of weird thought bubble that occurred at that time in that place that caused people to really think that they were gonna build these things and change the world. And you notice they would always sort of say change the world and, and not really talk about how or for the better or for the worse. They would just sort of say, we're gonna change the world, right? And that was sort of taken as a given that things would improve. And I think that the more you read, the more you realize that lots of things have unintended consequences. So that's my kind of flip answer. For Jack, I think, you know, maybe institute some of the things you've been talking about, like, you know, turning off follower counts and turning off, you know, uh, retweets and all these sort of design flaws that he's admitted are design flaws, but mm -hmm. hasn't um, hasn't experimented with actually changing. Awesome. Jillian? Yeah, uh, I love those answers. Um, I'm going to take it a step further and say, Mark Zuckerberg, I think it's time to step down. Um, I think it's time to replace yourself as CEO. It's the only job he's ever had. Um, I, you know, I would agree going back to school would be a great idea. You know, learning another field would be a great idea. But I think, um, yeah, his time, his time is up uh, in that position. And then for Jack, yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with what Andrew said here. And I would also just add to that, that I think that this is a really good moment for Twitter to go back and look at all of its rules over time, audit all of its processes, and perhaps think about bringing in some external oversight or external advisors um, to its to its uh, policymaking. All right, we're gonna send this video to all the CEOs so they can take your advice. This is great. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. I am going to go to um, audience questions. We've got a lot of good ones here. Um, one, one listener viewer um, has asked, social media is still so new. Are the companies simply refining their standards along with us refining our social norms? In other words, should we, are we all just adapting? And this is a little bit of like cold water shock. Yeah, I think we are, but I also think that um, the scale at which it's happening is a little bit too big and too grave uh, to simply take that as a kind of grace period. You know, 
I, I think it, it is the case that these are new institutions and they're kind of figuring it out as they go. But I think unlike, you know, a new startup that's trying to figure out how to, you know, deliver candy to the other side of town or something and is, you know, hits a few snafus and has to pivot a few times, you know, these are just massive civilization sized uh, infrastructural communities at this point. So they, they really don't have the luxury of messing up in the same way that other experimental companies do. Julian, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've made this joke before. I'm not sure if it's a joke anymore, but Facebook sometimes feels to me like the Soviet Union at the end of its tenure. Um, it, it's, you know, it's become this really intractable institution. All of these different departments, none of them really talking to each other, some of them not really understanding each other. Some of them seem to get excited um, when, you know, the other one is not in the room. So I, I don't know. I'm concerned that it, it's growing beyond us. So another question um, from an audience member is, can you talk about what AWS did with Parler? How does that fit into this conversation and how we regulate activity? For those who don't know what AWS is, AWS is the cloud service that Amazon owns and runs, and Parler is another social media app. Um, either of you, Andrew or Julian, who wants to take that one? What happened with AWS? Did that was that a speech issue? Was it a terms of service thing? What what was what was going on there? I can, I can jump in on this one. I mean, AWS, so um, they kicked off Parler. It was not the first time that they had booted a, a website from their platform, WikiLeaks. They did it to WikiLeaks in 2010, and they actually blocked the entire country of Iran um, due to their interpretation of sanctions. So this was not unprecedented, but um, it is. I think it is a speech issue. Um, as of now, these platforms like AWS are regulated in the same way as Facebook and Twitter, which are kind of user-generated content platforms. But there's this concept that's being talked about quite a bit um, within my organization, but also within academia and other spaces about the tech stack. Um, the idea that some services like Amazon Web Services are kind of closer to the core function of the internet and therefore should have different protections than those um, provided to, to companies like Facebook. Great. This is a good question, I think, for, for Andrew. How do we define extremism in online speech? Also, how did the internet go off the rails so much when it was like this utopia in the beginning? Uh, both, both very good questions. Um, so extremism was the word that I felt the most ambivalent about using. Um, I don't love the word because it sort of implies that, you know, the better, the better thing is to sort of be closer to the to the midpoint of wherever the so-called, you know, Overton window is. And anyone who's closer to the edge of it is somehow a dangerous extremist. And that's not something I believe. Right. So I feel uneasy about that connotation. I think there are a lot of extreme views that I agree with. Like, I, I think it's an extreme view to think that the U.S. government should be sued for, you know, uh, for carbon emissions because it's making people's lives unlivable. That's an extreme view that I think is correct and that I don't want people to be banned from social media for holding, right? So um, uh, so I don't think it's extremism per se that's a problem. I think it's actually sort of going back to the question earlier about, you know, the, the, the emotions that tap into the base of our brainstem, like xenophobia, like misogyny, um, like just sort of fear and, and, and rage. And I, I think a real way of getting to this is um, that these companies have tried to have this kind of false formalism for so long. They've tried to do a kind of both sides thing where 
you know, they'll say, well, you know, the left does this and the right does this. And, you know, we're going to ban Trump, but we're also going to ban, you know, some Black Lives Matter thing. And there, it's just sort of a PR game. And what what I think that speaks to is that their um, their hesitation to espouse values in a forthright way and to mm-hmm. say we actually just think misogyny is bad and <laughs> think racism is bad. Like, you know, they, they, they don't really seem willing to, you know, name sort of power structures, um, have a sort of coherent um, view on, you know, fundamental sort of speech values because that gets taken as political and it might sort of alienate half of their user base. Right. So um, that is just a, a, that's just a pickle that they're in if they're not willing to articulate their values. I mean, I think back to when, um, Facebook tried to do this extremely Facebook thing of issuing a very hair splitting decision about why they were taking down white supremacist content, but leaving up white separatist content. And um, I mean, we can get into the ins and outs of that. It's one of those things that the more you parse it, the, the, the more darkly funny it is because it just makes absolutely no sense. But to me, it's just immediately reveals that like, no, no, no. The, the right answer here is all this stuff is bad. What you do with it, how you get rid of it, that's a that's a separate question. But if you can't even say that white separatist content is bad and it goes against your values as a company, then I think you you have to rethink a lot of stuff. It's such a such an important point. I think Andrew, I've been thinking about that a lot as I think about Facebook and a lot of the other platforms where free expression um, and standing by free expression is a a pretty neutrally good platform, you know, and it's a good a good idea to espouse. But what that is for, what is free expression for? What are the values, as you said, are, are never quite articulated. And I think for the first time, actually, you're helping me synthesize that. Yeah. What are the values around that? Um, I have another question here. Um, um, we did the extremism. Actually, I would like to hear what, just to back up a little bit, how do you both define disinformation as opposed to misinformation? Because I this is not in one of the audience questions, but that's one thing that I think a lot of people trip up on and they don't know quite when they see those two words if there's a difference. Jillian, do you want to tackle that? Yeah, I mean, disinformation to me has an intent to it. It's intending to misinform or to disinform people, right? To give false information for the purpose of causing, you know, wreaking havoc, causing chaos or whatever one's goals. Um, Whereas misinformation can be things that are not intentional. It can be Dr. Fauci, um, you know, saying, saying what he said about masks in March 2020. He meant he had the best intent. He was giving the best advice that he had at the time, um, but it turned out to not be truthful. And I think that that's, yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment from my point of view. That's great. Um, here's another audience question. How does the concept of a social contract come into play around this issue and the role of individuals versus tech companies and government, et cetera? We're so polarized. Do individuals still have enough collective power to find common truth again? Well, I think you could actually argue that uh, users of a social media company have something actually more than a social contract. I mean, there there are people who argue that they actually have a legally binding contract because they've signed a, a, a user agreement, whether they read it or not. They they clicked OK before you know signing up for the service. So there are actual contracts that bind the user to the company. And those, you know, those responsibilities go both ways. But, you know, there there is a thought that, you know, um, some of those contracts are unconscionable would be the legal term because they're kind of coercive. So there is there is very real um, there is very real power dynamics at play that I think do uh, relate to the kind of 
social contract theory of kind of classical political thought. Um, I would say the main difference, right, is that if you're born into a place or into a country, you don't have much choice in that matter, whereas you always have the choice to, uh, you know, get off Facebook. Great. Um, so Twitter began labeling um, false information um, more than a year ago. And especially with the former president, there was just a lot of labeling going on. Um, so how effective are is this labeling and this tactic? How, how have you seen this actually cut back on disinformation, if, if at all? Um, not just for Trump, but across the board when it comes to false information. Jillian? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I think that it is a helpful tactic. I mean, I know that when it comes to Instagram, for example, and the way that they've rolled out their... Um, their corrections around vaccine misinformation, I found that to be a really helpful tool. Um, and I know that there is being research done, although that's you know not quite my area of expertise, um, but that has suggested that it does inhibit the spread of disinformation. Um, I think that overall, though, you know, while I, I do support this idea, and I think that like the fact checking that's being done around this on some of the platforms is really key um, in, a, in a lot of this, uh, in a, in, sorry, in curbing a lot of this spread. Um, at the same time, you know, this has been really only applied in certain circumstances, and we're still seeing a broad spread of disinformation in other parts of the world, particularly in other languages that are just not as well covered by these tools. Um, so again, important tool, but I think that there's a lot more that they need to be doing looking at other parts of the world. Great. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. Andrew and Julian, thank you so much for this great conversation, truly. It was so great to meet you both online and we could have talked for another hour. So thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Cecilia, Andrew, and Julian for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Sarah Bernard. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.